Thank you for joining us. This is our fifth annual Fall Theology Conference. It's a collaboration between my office and the Theology Ministry Department. That's why Dr. Gabrielson is up here with me. Uh, it's unique. It's a unique moment for us to bring this wonderful conference uh, into the chapel space. And so thank you for joining us today. I'm going to hand the mic over to Dr. Gabrielson, and he will introduce our plenary speaker for the morning. Thank you again. I am Dr. Tim Gabrielson. If I haven't had you in class yet, um, I'm an assistant professor of biblical studies here at Sterling College. And I would like to begin by offering thanks to the chaplain's office and Yellowstone Theological Institute for helping make this conference possible. We are on there this morning to host Dr. Craig Blomberg, distinguished professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary in Littleton, Colorado. He is the author of 16 books and has co-authored or co-edited 11 more, along with more than 150 journal articles and chapters in multi-author works. For those of you not closely monitoring the academic world, this basically means he is our version of an all-star. His research has focused on the historical reliability of the Bible, the interpretation of Jesus' parables, wealth and poverty, as well as various commentaries and introductions to New Testament books. For most of you, the most immediate impact Dr. Blomberg's scholarship has, um, has on you is the new international version of the Bible, of which I have one right here. He is a member of the committee that produced the NIV, which is among the most widely used English translations of the Bible. Dr. Blomberg is married to Fran, and they have two daughters, one son-in-law, and three grandchildren. On a personal note, let me add that Dr. Blomberg is more than an all-star scholar, but is also a good man and a faithful Christian. I took seven or so classes from him while I was in my master's studies at Denver Seminary. He served as my thesis advisor, and since I graduated from Denver Seminary, he has remained a mentor and friend. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Craig Blomberg. Thank you, Tim. Thanks to everybody for being here. Seven classes? Was it that many? You didn't have a very balanced education, did you? <laughs> and here I thought this set was to welcome me, but um, I tried standing on the highest level, but then I couldn't see because my head was behind the screen, so I guess I'll stay down here. Today's topic is um, something we negotiated. They were kind enough to invite me. I suggested some things I'd been working on recently, and uh, this emerged. And it's not the world's happiest topic. Um, what about those who have never heard? Which is, is really um, just an excuse to get into the whole issue of do we believe that there's anyone who is lost? And if so, what is hell like? I, I really wanted to come up with a, a I love dumb puns, um, and I really wanted to come up with a, a title that was something like, what kind of hell are we talking about? Or what the hell are we, and, but, but it just, it, it didn't come together. Um, and uh, so this looked like it was a little safer. I came to faith as a high schooler through campus life. I was nurtured in college through Campus Crusade for Christ, 
which now has lost all but one of its syllables and just calls itself crew. Um, and one of the issues that kept coming up in a lot of different contexts, probably because when you're young, it's unusual to have your peers pass away. I remember that the, the incident in high school that really turned me into a regular Bible reader about a year after I became a believer was a friend of mine who tried to kill herself. She didn't succeed, and, and, uh, and there's a happy ending to that story. At least, I have no idea what she's doing now, but for a while when I followed her. But uh, you start to ask questions. And then when I was a sophomore in college, uh, age 19, a friend of mine passed away from leukemia. They didn't have all the transplants and, and surgeries you have now. And he was a, a vibrant Christian and, and knew he was dying and went to his death with, with an amazing amount of, of confidence. But you ask questions. And, and both of those groups that I was nurtured with um, really encouraged people to be active in sharing their faith. And, and I tried to, but not everybody was interested. And those who would hear me, not everybody even who sounded somewhat interested, followed through. But even way back in the dark ages of the 1970s, talk to your parents, they might remember them, um, there were uh, a ton of people in this country and a whole lot more around the world who never seemed to have heard a credible, detailed genuine explanation of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And, and we were trying to help solve things, but we knew we, we wouldn't get to everybody. So what about those who've never really had a chance? A lot of times the answer I heard, quoting a passage out of Genesis 18, when Abraham is uh, talking to God, and he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Was the end of the conversation. I was like, okay, yeah, I trust that God is good. I trust that God is just. Is that all we can say? And over the years, I discovered that down through church history, a lot of people have said a whole lot more. But the view that is often best known, and sometimes it's the only one that's known, and sometimes it's the only one that's known by folks who reject the gospel, is what theologians call restrictivism. I was told there are a number of Spanish-speaking people here, so I found a little sign on uh, restricting visitation. <laughs> I have no idea what the context was, but English and Spanish, so there you have it. Restrictivism is the view that says unless you consciously confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can't be saved. And passages are quoted like John 14, 6, 
I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or Acts 4.12, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And go, well, that's pretty straightforward. But actually, it's one thing to say that no one comes to God except through Jesus. That's not quite the same thing as saying you have to have heard of Jesus. He could still be providing atonement through his death for people who have never heard of him. And there's no other name. Well, in the Bible, the name means the power, the authority. It's not just what are the letters that make up your first, middle, or last names. And the more I studied it, the more I realized that actually nobody in the world that I've ever heard of is a restrictivist. Because there are exceptions. What about everybody who lived before the time of Christ? What about all the faithful Israelites in the Old Testament and the occasional Gentiles who came to believe in Yahweh, the God of Israel? They never heard the name of Jesus. Oh, well, people say, yeah, that, that's cheating. That was before the time of Christ. <laughs> well, suppose I was a Spanish Jew. There was a good colony of Jews in the far Roman uh, province of Iberia in, in Spain in the first century. Suppose I was a, a, a faithful Jew who died in, pick a year, 36, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, but before the gospel had gotten to Spain. Now we're in Christian times, so did something happen on April 7th, A.D. 30, that this person who was in relationship with God, suddenly because Jesus died and rose again in Israel, now they were kicked out of the kingdom? That doesn't seem quite right. What about uh, people who really can't make a profession of faith? Got some really cute babies up there. Um, yeah, you can say, oh, it's okay. What... <laughs> What about a baby or a small child that dies or somebody who's profoundly mentally challenged or disabled in some way? They, and people intuitively say, well, we're not talking about those kinds of people. So they're not really full-fledged restrictivists. There are other possibilities on the horizon. That's nevertheless one option. That's probably the best known option. A second one, swinging the pendulum to the opposite extreme that is becoming increasingly popular in our day and has been throughout church history in different times and places, is universalism. This is the idea that eventually everyone will be saved no matter what they've done, no matter what they've chosen, no matter who they've followed or haven't followed in this life. Sometimes uh, it is a view that this happens to people immediately upon death. Sometimes it happens later. But sooner or later, everybody is going to get saved. And probably the two most common verses uh, are out of Romans and 1 Corinthians. And if you just do the very first, yeah, I'll stop there for a second. Um, if I read Romans 5.18 all by itself, consequently, just as one trespass 
resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. And I go, well, everybody has sinned without exception, and they're parallel statements, so therefore everybody without exception must receive eternal life. But I trust that your professors have taught you what I tell my students if they forget everything else they have ever learned and only remember one seven-letter word that starts with a C. I'm hearing it down here. Context. Somebody wakes you up with a fire drill at three in the morning, and then you discover it's your roommate playing a trick on you. And what he or she wants to ask you is, what's the one word of Bible interpretation? I hope that even in your groggy stupor, you'll be able to say context. And so if I back up a verse, I read, for if by the trespass of the one man, Adam, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's, oh, Oh, now the all is being qualified. All who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And then if I go to the verse after 518, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, the many were made sinners. Why, do, why does Paul switch from all to many? Well, apparently because he wants to set up parallelism with many. And so the next clause goes on to say, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. But many is not the same as all. Now, if you have all, and all is a lot, then all is many. Think about this, this is hard. But if you start out with many, many may not be all. <laughs> It'll dawn on you later. <laughs> and then there's 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if that's all people in world history being saved, but it's a big crowd. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. One verse, you can memorize it. Slam dunk, end of story, we're all universalists. No. What's that seven-letter word? Can you say it as loud as you said good morning to Paul? Hey, you guys are good. Will you remember it tomorrow? I won't, I won't be here to check up, but one of you will, right? Okay, thanks. So I go to the next verse. Oh, all means everybody in stages. First Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. That's who the all is. And so, no, neither of these verses, nor in my opinion, others that sometimes are quoted, teach that all people will one day be saved. Why would Paul be such a zealous evangelist if he actually believed that? And besides, there would be other problems about to appear before you. 
it would violate human freedom. The great English apologist, and maybe best known around the world for the Narnia Chronicles, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and so forth, once said there are two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, your will be done, and those to whom God says, your will be done. There are people who want nothing to do with God or Jesus. It would violate their freedom for God to require them to be part of his family and household. It would also violate all our sense of justice. A less famous New Testament scholar, now retired with the unfortunate name of Klein Snodgrass, um, <laughs> he's a good friend, he's put up with jokes his whole life, Without judgment, there is no need for salvation. There's nothing to be saved from. Without judgment, life is cheapened. For what we do does not matter. And we have seen that so often in recent years. I live in Littleton, Colorado, which became world famous in 1999, for a series of shootings called Columbine. And then in the later years, the early part of the last decade for the Aurora Theater shootings that killed and injured about 70 people. And in each case, well, they actually caught the guy in Aurora before he could take his life, but the shooters at Columbine, the shooters at many schools around the country, and in malls and in other places, do their best to immediately take their own lives. Why? Because they don't believe there's anything else. That's it. There's no judgment. The only judgment they're afraid of is what might happen to them in this life if they stay alive. So they're the world's biggest cowards, and they take their own lives. Which is tragic from a Christian point of view. Because as C.S. Lewis also once said, not one of us has ever met a mere mortal. Everyone we ever meet lives forever. The only question is, in what condition, in what context, in what environment? If you have been deeply hurt by somebody, or if there's a cause that you just feel passionately about bringing justice to the world. And somebody says, there's no judgment. There's no holding those people to account, ultimately. And that, that's really devastating. Well, those are the two extremes. Are, are there any other options in between? Any intermediate options? Some people over the centuries have thought, well, maybe there's a Second chance for people after death. And a couple of passages out of 1 Peter are typically cited here. One that's in the midst of a, a convoluted long paragraph in 1 Peter 3. that talks about Jesus after being made alive after his death, went and proclaimed to the spirits who were in prison. If you study that passage, I think... Jesus, that Peter is talking about Jesus 
preaching to fallen angels, to the demonic realm, not to human beings. But Dr. Gabrielson can explain all the details. I don't know if he believes that, but he can explain all the details. The, the other passage is in 1 Peter 4, 6, where Peter talks about the gospel being preached to the dead, is what the text literally says. But a lot of translations, including the NIV, um, put in the word now, which I think is a, a correct interpretation. Don't have time to go into it. Besides, Hebrews, and that's a typo, it should say 9.27, says you die, and then there's judgment. And Christ came once for all to offer the sacrifice for sin. Doesn't seem to allow for an intermediate second chance. Well, maybe we should believe in purgatory. Roman Catholics do. So uh, I die, and if I've been anything other than a, a real saint in the Catholic sense, just a, an amazing person, then I will spend some time in purgatory paying for my sins. It's not suffering as bad as hell, but it's not pleasant. But there's an end to it. And that end can be sped up if uh, people on earth pray for me more. And eventually, then I'll get to be with Jesus in heaven. And here, a couple of passages out of Matthew are often quoted where, in the context of judgment, Jesus says people will not get out of the metaphorical prison that's being described until they have paid the last penny. Except if you read the context, um, there's no way anybody can pay the last penny. If you owe a debt in the ancient world, and if it's a big debt, there's no way to make money. There, there were no opportunities even for jobs to earn tiny bits of pay like in modern jails or prisons. It's just another way of saying, you're going to languish there forever. And again in Matthew, but in the parable of the sheep and the goats in 2546, Jesus talks about those who are his people, those who are not, and describes eternal life and eternal punishment, um, conscious, prolonged existence. It doesn't end because... I've paid for my sins. Well, let's see. We're not done with options yet. Uh, another possibility is um, God knows how everyone would respond if they had had a chance. Well, I believe that. I believe in God's omniscience. He knows everything. But is that all that there is to say? It's amazing. I ask a question and the answer appears on the screen. And I'm not even working the controls here because they couldn't figure out how I could do that. But I think it's Brett is a superstar in the back there. Promised to call him out. He thought I was going to call him out if something went wrong. But 
so if God's going to just judge people based on how they would have responded if they'd had a chance, why bother to share our faith with anybody? <laughs> why have anybody bother to share their faith with us? Just God knows and he'll figure that all out one day. Or a more somber thought. If we believe that little kids, some people talk about an age of accountability, before that age, uh, if they die or with the Lord, then I'm sorry, this sounds so horrible, but a colleague of mine years ago said I should have been named Bluntberg and not Blomberg. Um, why not just kill everybody before they reach the age of accountability? Or if you let them go, if life gets too hard, just kill them or take your own life. Because uh, if you were one who would have responded, God knows, and you'll go to heaven. And if you weren't one, well, there's no hope for you anyway. And the interesting thing is, for those of you who have ever heard about Calvinists and Arminians, the two ends of a theological spectrum on the whole topic of election or predestination, they both wind up with the same results here. Because the Calvinists, the strong Calvinists, will say, well, whoever the elect are, God knows, and they'll be saved, and whoever are not the elect, they won't, they, they won't be saved. Okay, both ends of the spectrum say, well, then, what's the point of life? Hmm. Oh, good, there's still more white space. What's next? Um, okay, now I think we're starting to make some progress. A passage that has widely been cited over the centuries comes out of Romans chapter 2, verses... 14 to 16. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law to themselves. Paul is addressing the question of how God can hold all people to account He's already said in chapter 1, verse 20, that everybody can know that God exists through creation. And now he says there is a moral conscience in the heart of every person. Some people suppress and harden their hearts, and over time their consciences are what the Bible calls seared, which is the language of being burned. But we still have consciences. Paul goes on, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts, sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. All this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. There is a winnowing of accusation and clearing of accusation in this context that has been summarized by a lot of people throughout church history as for those who have never heard, 
God will judge them according to the light, the knowledge, the insight that they have received. I went to grad school with an African man um, who was already in his 40s when he was studying for his PhD uh, back in the 1980s, so that means that he was born in around 1940 in Ghana in a rural area, and he remembers the first European missionaries bringing the gospel to his particular tribe when he was a kid. And his father had passed away a couple of years before this period of time, and Africans are very um, tightly knit, traditionally, uh, communities, and a lot of people came to Christ through these missionaries' efforts, and and he wanted to trust in Christ. The, the message sounded, it, it rang so true. But he went to the missionary and said, I, I just have one question. My father died two years ago. He, he never had a chance to hear this amazing message that you're telling. Where is he today? Missionaries have answered that question very differently over the centuries. But fortunately for this young man, Jacob was his name, the missionary said, well, I, I can't tell you with 100% certainty. But he quoted Romans, simplified it, explained it, and said, it seems to me, given the way your kin have responded and and." responded together, if your father was like them, that he would have responded to Jesus, and we can hope that uh, he is in heaven. And the boy said, I'm glad you said that. I'm ready to put my trust in him. If you hadn't said that, and you told me he was in hell, then I would have had to Reject your message because I have to go and be wherever my father is. That's not the best seven or eight year old logic in the world, but <laughs> God superintended to make things possible. But can we say even more than that? Are there ways that uh, people can get more light if you are at all familiar with the worldwide sweep of the gospel among Islamic people, especially about a million underground Christians in Iran, especially um, Syrian and other Middle Eastern refugees in Greece and Albania and other parts of Europe. An amazing number of people have been becoming believers in the last 10, 15, 20 years about half of them have had a vision or a dream in which an angel or Jesus himself has appeared to them. Oh, there really are angels? <laughs> I thought that's part of the Bible we just passed by real quickly. And in the Western world, the same thing happens, though, not nearly as frequently. 
as well as something that there is an entire body of literature on now called near-death experiences. What wasn't possible until 30, 40, 50 years ago, people who are flatlined on the operating table or elsewhere, pronounced dead, but then thanks to modern medicine, or occasionally, apart from it, revive and describe, not always, but with a remarkable frequency, being still conscious, being in a place, often in a tunnel or some kind of transitional environment, many times seeing light at the end of the tunnel. Sometimes, if they are believers, meeting Jesus, meeting an angel, meeting people who have died before them, that are with the Lord, and then either being told or without being told, suddenly being brought back to this world because they've been revived. Now, there's debate on exactly what people experience when that happens, but for the sake of argument, let's just say even some of those stories are true, genuine reports of what has happened. The only way we even know about them is because we've got the technology to bring people back to this life, whether they want to come or not, and get to hear their story. How many other people around the world and in other ages had the same experience, but we don't know about it because they didn't come back to this life. They went on to whatever their destiny was. God may have all kinds of ways of dealing with those who haven't heard or haven't heard a, a credible presentation of the gospel. But what's really at stake? Why do people ask these questions? A lot of it has to do with what we think Christians teach or believe or tell us we're supposed to believe about hell. Line one. A lot of people in my lifetime have told me, I just can't believe in hell. I just can't believe in a God who would condemn anybody to uh, eternal life apart from Him. Of course, this is a problem on all kinds of fronts. There are people who say, I can't believe in COVID. <laughs> Some of them have died of it. It's not adequately stressed in the 21st century that truth on any topic is unrelated to whether you can believe it or not. I can't believe that I'll hurt myself if I just keep walking off the edge of this stage. Well, you know what? Barring a supernatural experience, there's an extraordinarily high likelihood I will, whether I can believe it or not. <laughs> but then, 
the medieval writer Dante with his famous inferno of fire and devils with pitchforks and all the stuff that we've seen characterized and caricaturized is not the biblical picture anyway. The two most common images in the Bible for hell are outer darkness and flames. And the last time I checked, if you try to take either of those literally, they cancel each other out. So it must be metaphorical for the desperation of removal, separation from God and all things good, whatever the actual experience is like. And a passage that's very infrequently referred to at the end of Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48, suggests that uh, there are degrees of punishment in hell. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. I remember when I was younger, I don't know why they always picked on a little old lady, but the story always went like this. You mean the sweet little old lady at the end of the street who never knew Jesus is going to be punished as much as Hitler or Mao Zedong or Pol Pot or Idi Amin? And, well, that's ridiculous, so I can't believe in hell. And the Bible's answer is no. Nobody's saying that. Some of those guys are getting a lot worse. <laughs> Nobody's going to have an excitingly happy, pleasant afterlife who doesn't know Jesus, but there are vast gradations of experience and punishment. I have to wrap this up. C.S. Lewis said, uh, the gates of hell are locked on the inside, and we're back to that idea of if somebody does stay separate from God for all eternity, it is not against their desire, it's because that what is what they have chosen. And there's a fascinating passage in Revelation 20. Who makes sense out of Revelation? Well, on anybody's interpretation, after the millennium, after the thousand years, whatever you understand that to be, when Satan has been chained and not able to deceive the nations to the extent he did before, he's loosed, and immediately people from all over the world flock to rebel against a Jesus who has been portrayed as ruling more graciously and benevolently than anything the world has ever seen. Whatever else that means, it means there are people who are just utterly intransigent in their rebellion against God. Now, fortunately, we don't know who they are. And the people we think might be are sometimes some of the most wonderful converts. And vice versa. but it is a sobering reminder. But let's end on a positive note. Let's turn to Revelation 21 
It's got to be one of the most glorious passages in Scripture. If life is at all hard for you at any point, I recommend reading the last two chapters of the Bible on a regular basis. Revelation 21, 22. I'm just going to read the first four verses. Then I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Even if what we had to skip, the idea of annihilationism, the loss just cease conscious existence, which is difficult for me to square with passages that talk about it would be better for Judas never to have been born. Why, if all he does is cease conscious existence? But even if that view is right, would you want to miss out on an eternal existence with this kind of glory? I don't want to. But I also don't want to go later than I've already gone late because colleges run remarkably by time. And people just leave to do things. It's not like church where you can fudge. So 